You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast fans. Graduation is coming. You know what makes for a great graduation gift for a theater fan? Be a Broadway star. The only Broadway board game there is. Go to BeABroadwayStar.com and get it for your graduator today. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. This is the Producer's Perspective podcast. I am Ken Davenport. I'm super excited about my guest today. She's one of the most in-demand female directors on the planet, and her name is Lee Silverman. Welcome, Lee. Thanks, Ken. That's so nice. What a great introduction. On Broadway, Lee has directed well, Chinglish, which was a show I was on, uh, most recently Violet, which grabbed her a Tony nomination. Uh, she's directed a whole ton of shows off-Broadway at some of the most prominent theaters around the country, including Playwrights Horizons, MTC, The Goodman, Second Stage. We were just talking off the record about her incredible relationship with the Sundance Theater Lab. She's off to Morocco soon. How cool is that? And now she's sitting here before going to Morocco and talking to us. So, Lee, where did you get the theater bug? Oh, always. Um, super bossy only child. Um, and I was lucky because I had somebody tell me at a very young age that I was a terrible actor. So that was like a tremendous relief. And um, I didn't have to pursue that. But I was a complete theater nerd and loved everything about the theater. And there was nobody in my family in the arts at all. And so I was really like just out there. And I, um, I started 
directing because I was at this summer theater program and this, I was there as an actor and this, the person who headed the program took me out after the first day and she said, Lee, I just have to tell you, you're terrible, but I think you're really smart and I think you should assist me this summer. And she gave me all these plays that I had never read. She gave me Ibsen and she gave me Shaw and she gave me Chekhov and I assisted her for the summer. And so I went with her scene to scene and I was 15 years old and it changed my life. I went to Carnegie Mellon um, to a pre-college program and I was admitted in between my junior and senior year of high school, admitted into college from that program. So I started my senior year of high school knowing that I was going off to be a theater director and that was going to be the rest of my life. So I had a tumultuous senior year of high school because I, of course, didn't have to do anything and then, you know, barely kind of made it through and uh, and then went to Carnegie Mellon and that was it. And then I was um, in that program as an undergrad director, which is one of the only um, places where you can get an undergraduate degree in theater directing. And I also, while I was there, did a graduate degree in playwriting, which I did because I wanted to work on new plays. And there was no other way to kind of get in a room with with a writer except to be a writer myself. And I was kind of just, I think, uh, determined enough that they kind of couldn't say no. So I sat there and I learned so much about directing while I was a writer, actually, because I learned about story and structure and character. And I learned how to talk to writers and I learned about the writing process. And um, and then I moved to New York. And that was 20 years ago. Exactly. I mean, I have so many questions already, but we have to go back because when sure. you were talking about Oh, and then this woman took me out and she said I was terrible yes. and I was in the summer program. I expected you to say, oh, and that was during college. You were 15, I was 15. years yeah. old? Yeah. And yeah. how did you deal with like that? A 15-year-old, a teenager gets told they're terrible at something. A lot of them would just run into their room, cry forever yeah. and never emerge again. Yeah. This one told you you're terrible at something. You obviously enjoyed it to some extent. Yeah. I yeah, I, you know, I have to say, I think because she was so quick to say, you're really smart and you have this other thing going, and I can tell already, only knowing me a day, that it sort of saved me um, from that feeling of, um, oh God, I'll never do this again kind of thing. And I think actually there was a little bit of relief in it because I didn't know that there were other real opportunities for me. Um, in the theater, aside from being, you know, a star, which is what I imagined. And so it was, it was, there were a lot of things about it that actually like all of a sudden I felt like I'd putting, been putting a round peg in a square hole or whatever that expression is. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh no, 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 like I can do this whole other thing. And, um, and it, so it was kind of great actually. And I also felt special because I felt singled out and I got to follow her around all summer. So even though it was, I'm sure like weirdly just punishing and she didn't want to, you know, have to deal with me all summer. It was also, I felt special because I felt seen. I felt like she saw something in me that was very sustaining for me. And I, I can actually, I think there are a few people in my life who have, have done that. They have seen some kind of potential there and um, I am so grateful for them. I mean, frequently it comes on the heels of something being a terrible failure or humiliation, as all the best lessons are. But, but I'm so grateful for that, for being seen in that way and understood. And then you have the foresight to enroll in a master's program in playwriting to understand the play. Did you? You obviously had to write stuff. I did. Yes. Any of it good? I mean, did you like it? Did you ever get it produced? Um, I did write one play that has been produced um, uh, in uh, 
1998, I wrote a play that was in the Fringe Festival and then kind of did well in the Fringe Festival and had a kind of second production. Um, but not since then. I actually feel now that I've had the great privilege of being around really good writers, I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm not a good writer. I'm not a good writer. But I know what good writing is. And I also feel very, I have felt confident in my ability to talk about writing and talk to writers about their writing um, in a way that I think has, um, it, it served me to do those other jobs. And I think always in theater, it serves us to say, oh, well, to be reminded of how terrifying it is to act or to write or to be um, a designer and come in so late in the process and have to make magic or whatever it is and to say oh right this is what this is how to make a whole process happen is to really understand what the pieces are that have to come together what does a director do what's a director's job sum it up in a sentence or two for me well it's interesting directing is such a mystery to so many people because it's so different every single time. Every single process is wildly different. I believe that the director is the captain, is the great manager of all personalities and all creativity. And it is the director's job to pull it together, shape it, and then bring it forth to an audience in a way that they can see, appreciate, and understand. And it requires a huge amount of vision tenacity, flexibility. Um, you have to know what to say when and to who. And I feel that directing ultimately is the most, can be the most collaborative and rewarding for its collaboration and the most punishing um, because in a way, so much of what a director does can be um, attributed to other people. It can also be um, a place where um, it's very... Uh, it's very often that a director can get um, blamed for things that they have done nothing but try and rally against. And um, it is, it is a tricky, it's a tricky spot. And it's also the place where you have to take full responsibility. You just have to say, yep, this is, I stand behind this and I'm doing this. And, um, you know, I joke around sometimes like, oh, I, I really wish there was like an insert you could put in a program to say, this is what I did, or this is what I wish I hadn't done or whatever. But you know, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's the greatest. I mean, it's the greatest. And for me, so much of that is about the collaborations that I have with writers. So how early do you like to come into the process of working on a new play? Well, sometimes I just get scraps. I get like a few lines from maybe one scene or a little bit of a monologue or a collaborator that I've worked with a lot will say, oh, I have this idea. Can I take you out to dinner and talk to you about it? Do you think it's viable? Um, so sometimes it's that early and sometimes there's a play that's fully baked and gets handed to me and I read it and I think, oh yeah, that's something I would be really interested in working on. So it really varies. So let's, that's fascinating because I've actually never heard uh, that described to me in that way. So a playwright takes you to dinner and pitches you an idea and asks, is it viable? What, are, what ticks the boxes for you that makes a play viable? I think if it feels to me, in particular with writers that I have had deep and long collaborations with, where I've worked on three or more plays with them, um, if it feels like an idea that has depth, that has stylistic challenge, that has um, interesting characters, where they can say, oh, I have this like idea for this one line, like when they can see it that clearly, both they can see the forest and the trees at the same time, even though it's not written yet, I always feel like, yes write it, do that. That sounds amazing. And 
it's it, it always feels like for me it's a great honor when writers come to me again and again to say that they want to continue our collaboration because I think the collaboration gets deeper um, the more you do with somebody the greater the shorthand is and to feel like you frequently go through the trenches and there are all kinds of things that you feel really great about and all kinds of things you wish were different and to feel like you get to the other side and then a writer says hey you know I have this new idea can we talk about this next thing I feel like that's for me the greatest success that is what I live for and that's what I want from my collaborations is to feel like they just continue and that I'm someone that somebody likes to say, she's mine. I work with her. And the other example, someone hands you a fully baked play. Yes. What's, what's your process like? You get that play, you go away, and you're working on it. You've already decided, I'm doing this. We go into rehearsals in three months. What's your process for getting ready to go into rehearsals? Well, one of the great challenges of directing new plays is that even plays that are fully baked as I like to say, um, still get to change all the time. And so there's always a design process in which I try and design the play that I see on the page, but also design the play that might exist by the time we open. And sometimes those are two very different kinds of plays. And I try and assess from the writer how much work they're planning on doing, what they're thinking about, what things they want to change. Um, I try to incorporate that um, as much as I can into a vision for what the future life of this play might look like. Um, a writer might say to me, I really love sort of the structure of the play, but I'm very confused about um, this character. So sort of how that actor is picked, what kind of actor we look for, the way that actor, because in a new play process, anything can happen. So there's always a chance that we're going to need more or less from that particular person. So I, I try and incorporate really what the writer feels the trajectory of the play is into my grand scheme, then I um, enter into a very, try to enter into a very rigorous dramaturgical conversation with my designers about how we're going to tell the story. How are we going to tell the story visually? What's our way in? What's the first image? What's the, what's the climax? What's the end? How, do, how are people supposed to feel? What's going to make them go, oh, that's so surprising. What are the stylistic challenges of the play? What's the tone of the play? And how do we communicate that tone through design? And I like to meet with my designers a lot. I like to ask them a lot of questions about the play, what they think. I like to sometimes read the play out loud with designers and make them read the parts because uh, that's hilarious. And also, I find that actually it gets us all on the same page. Who's Literally. The, who's the worst designer actor out there? Oh, that's so. F I you mean, don't have to that, I would just I say just... they're all. They're all. You know, everyone. Everyone's sort of horrified, and then they get into it. Let me put it that way. I love the idea of like Robin Wagner. Like yeah, reading. <laughs> totally. You get it. You you have everybody over. You have a glass of wine. It's great. Um, and and literally, it lets you just get on the same page about. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that was funny or that kind of thing. Because when everybody reads a play, they're having their own experience of it, and so to actually read the play together if they haven't had the opportunity to come to a reading or see a workshop or something like that. So then the next part of the process usually is the audition process. And that is also a great tool for learning about the play. Because even if you've developed a play for two, three, four years, frequently you've heard the same actors do it. And sometimes when you have auditions and you have different people come in to hear it, I mean, sometimes I think, oh, that scene, I mean, that's the wrong choice, but that could totally work that way. And you get all kinds of ideas about about the play and just to hear it over and over again, um, certain parts of it, I always find the audition process incredibly useful for learning about the play, what people respond to the, in in the play, how they perceive it. Um, traps, 
you, it's a, audition time is a really good time to be like, oh yeah, that's a total pitfall of this scene or of this character. And then, um, and then we start the rehearsal process and I am a big fan of rewrites. I'm a big fan of, um, keep keeping going until, until you can't go anymore, which is, which is generally five minutes before you open. And, uh, I've worked with lots of, um, writers who, who like to work that way and just keep going. David Wong always says, um, you know, his plays, uh, aren't finished. They just open. And I, I really appreciate that about him. Lisa Crone is exactly the same. Um, there's actually three different published copies of Lisa's Play Well that I did on Broadway because one was published after we did the run at the public. And then um, there was a version that was published and the galleys had to go to print while we were in rehearsal for Broadway. And we changed the ending from the time we were in rehearsal till then the time that the show opened on Broadway and then there was another published version. So you can actually see kind of the new play process in published form, which is simultaneously horrifying to Lisa, but also it's amazing because you can see how rigorous she was with herself all through that process, right up through the opening on Broadway. How much can an actor change the scope of a play? Like what what's the greatest percentage change you've seen in a play because all of a sudden you cast the right actors and you're like, oh my gosh, these guys are taking it in a totally different direction and it's fantastic. Can it affect it that much? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's the great thing about actors is they come together with you and they show you something that you had never thought to th- was there. And it is that kind of collaboration where they're showing you all sides of something that you can only see a few sides of is it's an extraordinary moment because frequently if you have an actor who you really trust, who's really, I mean, I think the the key element is that everyone sort of has a general idea of the target that they're trying to hit. So that if everyone, which I think is the director's job, that if there's a sense of the vision of how the show is going to work, then an actor can show you all kinds of things that you had no idea was there and bring to life so many possibilities and um that that are that I think are so can be so delightful and so startling and the revelation that can come with a great actor is is incredible it's just incredible and I think I've had the good fortune of working with a lot of actors who have shown me things about the shows that I thought I knew so much about um and then somebody comes in and they and you're like, oh, 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 no, no, now I see. Now I see how that can go. And then you start the process of building a performance. And um, when you trust an actor and you have someone who's so on board with what you want to do and showing you all these great things and with that creativity and skill, it's you feel you feel so comfortable, I think, in in the job that way. What do you look for when an actor walks in a room in first minute of their audition? What are you looking for? for someone that you know at least will get to a callback or, or might be considered for this? I'm looking for strong choices. They don't have to be the right choices. They don't have the choices that are ultimately going to be the ones that we make for production. But I'm really looking for someone to come in with a point of view, know how to play in action, know what the scene is about, has read the play, has some general knowledge about the writer. If possible, they understand something about where this play might fit in the work of this writer, what this play is about, what the writer is trying to say and do with it, you know, to have an opinion, but also to be then able for me to be like, okay, that was great. Can we try it this way? And then also be able to do that. I I think the hardest 
time as a director when you're sitting in auditions is when people are sort of just coming in and they're trying to simply perform it for you without really having a point of view or a strong sense of action or a strong sense of what the character that they're playing is trying to do. It's very hard to cast someone that way, even when they're fantastic. And I think actors who are good auditioners are not always great in long-running shows, and actors who are great in long-running shows are often terrible auditioners. They're very different skills. And I think it's really important to, as an actor, to be able to practice both things because actually you have to get the job and so learning how to be a good auditioner learning how to walk into a room not panicking managing your anxiety being able to talk to a director being able to read a play talk about it understand what's happening in a scene play a play an action those are all very important they're as important as they are being in a room present ready to rehearse every day ready to run a show and and they're different skills and it's hard to find an actor who can do really do both and excel at both. Most of the new plays, if not all, frankly, in this country seem to be developed at nonprofit theaters. Now, I'm a producer and I like a new play. Should should the commercial world develop more new plays or should we just leave it to the nonprofits? They do it best. Mm. That's the way it's done. It's It's been very successful most recently. Should commercial producers like me just leave it alone and let the nonprofits do it? Or do you think there's a way that commercial producers could? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like, I mean, we're all in this ecosystem. And I feel like the writers need the support and the directors need the support of all kinds of people. We need dramaturgs. We need the not-for-profits. We need commercial producers. We need people to say... Um, this is a great thing of beauty and it should live downtown. This is a great thing of beauty. We should sell tickets to tourists. Like there is, there are people who need to make those decisions. Those are generally not the artists. We need everybody. And I think there've been a lot of really great uh, comings together of commercial producers who want to um, work with artists that they trust and believe in and they can use an opportunity at a not-for-profit out of town in town wherever to explore what the possibilities of those shows might be and I also think that it, it in a way um, when it works best it's helpful to everybody I think the danger of it of course is that um, kind of this idea that slots are for sale at, at not-for-profit theaters and I think that's dangerous. But what I believe is that we can have it all and that that is how we best thrive when when all things are possible, when there can be in a season a show or two that has help from a commercial enhancer, when there's also, they're taking a risk on some new writer and no commercial producers involved. And then there's this kind of thing and this kind of thing. I really feel like the not-for-profit world, both New York and regionally, benefits from all kinds of interests from all kinds of people, as long as it's not at the exclusion of anything else. And I think that's where we get into a little bit of trouble. Obviously, you love plays. And then you directed Violet, which was incredible. And then I saw your Wild Party uh, at City Center, and which was also fantastic. Do you like musicals? I love musicals. You want to do more of that? I am doing I'm doing like two musicals in the next year, which I'm so excited about. And I um I mean, 
for me, musicals, the, they're like plays, but just much more complicated <laughs> because there's so many more people to manage. So it's like, I mean, doing Wild Party was like, it felt like being in the Olympics, you know, it was like getting the very best people who are very good at their jobs and giving them, you know, three days to perform at the highest level, like with, um, you know, altitude sickness or something like it just felt like, you know, running marathons or something. It was so great and so hard. I mean, we staged that whole play in five days, um, that whole giant dance musical. And I think the thing about musicals when you can actually, when you're not in the encore situation, but when you're actually working on them is the storytelling possibilities are just, they just grow exponentially because you have the music and you have the lyrics and um, the way that you tell that story and the rigor that's required to tell that story well is exponentially increased as opposed to a play where you have, you can have music and you can have other elements that help you tell that story, but not where you have a book writer, a lyricist, a composer, and sometimes that's all one person, like in the case of Wild Party, but when you have a number of people, plus you have a music director, um, you have all kinds of additional creative members of the team who have opinions and points of view and require all kinds of um, managing and handling and getting everybody pointed in that one direction towards that target. And, and that challenge, which feels sometimes unendingly hard on a play is then like multiplied by, by a thousand on a musical. I love it. So if you were, imagine that all those people you just described, the book writer, the composer, the lyricist, the choreographer, the music director, uh, are all at a bar hanging out. And I go in and talk to them and I say, Hey, describe Lee Silverman's rehearsal process for me. How would they describe it? Oh, um, I think they would say, that I really like to work hard, that I never give up a minute, that I challenge them to be better than they thought, and that, uh, let's see, I would like to believe that they say that I'm also a lot of fun. I cannot um, say that with full confidence, but I feel that that is also part of the potentially thing that people might say about me. <laughs> um, but mostly I think... The experience that people have working with me is that I just ask a lot of questions and I don't give up and that I hold myself to a kind of high standard and I make everybody else do that too. I only run into problems with people who are lazy. Can you tell us what those musicals you're working on are? Um, I'm doing a musical with... Um, uh, Sutton Foster that I'm very excited about. I've never heard of her. I know, yeah. A great. No talent and very short legs. Yeah, yeah. Unattractive weird, mean, terrible. Um, Sutton is one of the few actors that I feel like I would follow her to the ends of the earth. There is nothing that I wouldn't do for her. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And I'm working on a musical, two musicals actually, with a collaborator of mine named Ethan Lipton. I did a play of his three years ago at the public called No Place to Go. And um, he has two musicals, one that he is in with his band and the other that we're doing this summer for... Um, Club Thumb Summer Works with uh, Celia Keenan-Bolger and John Conley and Christine Nielsen and Jeremy Shamos. And we just have like a cast of all stars in this um, awesome kind of downtown summer theater kind of way. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's um, called Too Macho. And it's a Western apocalyptical musical. Do you read reviews? Mm -mm. Not at all. Never. Why? Oh, I... I'm just one of those people, I'm not on Facebook, 
I'm not, I, I work very hard to tune out the noise. I find that in terms of long-term sustainability in the theater, you know, you always end up knowing, you always end up seeing the pull quotes, like you figure it out, you don't need to read it. And I think I, I, I had read a review once where, um, I'm trying to think maybe eight years ago and, um, and the review said it was so mean. It was so mean about the show and it was super mean about me. And it said, um, as of course it's burned in my brain. Every director has one of these like burned in their brain. And mine was, um, why would you hire Lee Silverman to direct the show? She has zero visual sense. And you know, I carry that with me always. And, and I, I have found that, um, I am not interested in, um, putting myself in a constant state of, um, I have enough anxiety and I have enough ambition and things that I want to do. And I'm, I, I don't need the added, um, benefit of feeling like every morning I'm scanning the paper, trying to see what the reviews are. And, and that being said, I feel very confident that I know exactly what everybody's reviews are for every show in the city. There's a way that you just know. And I feel as a theater artist that it's also my job to turn down the noise on the things that get in my way so I can focus on the other stuff. So that's, that's kind of how I roll. How do you think the new American play is doing right now? You think it's a very healthy patient? I feel like right now the new American play is thriving because every writer that I work with is also writing for television. So for the first time ever, writers have a way to support themselves and have a sustainable career. And there's tons of TV being shot in New York. So actors are able to make more of a living. I have felt, I mean, it's super annoying because I frequently feel like I'm the only person who's not working on a television show. And then I'm like, wait a minute, why am I buying you a drink? You guys take me out. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I feel like actually the boom of television and this sort of renaissance that's happening right now in the world of, of TV and cable and internet and everything is done great, great service. To plays because now writers are actually able to make a living. They can work on a TV show and then they can also be writing their plays and they have the whole rest of the year to write. And um, although I do feel like it's draining some of our resources, I also feel like it's giving back in, in undeniable ways. Um, I mean, some of the greatest shows that are on right now are written by playwrights. So in your introduction for this podcast, I said um, you're one of the greatest female directors or most in-demand female directors. Has it been harder to become an A-list director in this business being a woman? Is the old boys club of directors that true? Well, what I think is that, I mean, I get asked this question fairly frequently. And I will say when I directed Lisa's Play Well on Broadway in 2006, I was only the seventh woman to ever direct a straight play on Broadway. In 2006. And that was appalling. There's been... That number has increased exponentially since then. Um, I feel very lucky um, that I was part of that change. And that so many of my enormously talented peers have also been able to sort of come up in a next generation of women who are being taken seriously as theater directors. I will say that off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway and regionally, places where there's not a huge amount of money 
involved, I feel like there's much more gender parity in terms of women directing. And I feel like the closer you get to the money, the less women there are. And so when you get talk about big commercial shows, when you talk about giant expensive musicals, fewer and fewer women. And when you're talking about the season of playwrights, the season at New York Theatre Workshop, the season other places, more women. And that is just true. And even though last year there was like something like 17% or 16% of the plays or shows on Broadway were directed by women, that percentage is actually, there are just more shows now. But the, even though, so there were, even though there are more women, the percentage has stayed the same. And that is, it's just undeniable. And I feel that there's more work to be done. And it's incredible to me, like the, the way that I felt um, as I was sort of coming up and the women I looked up to, like I, I feel like all, everything about the culture is changing and continues to change, but we're kind of not there yet is my assessment. And um, I think it's, there are women who are thriving in the off-Broadway community who have never been given the opportunity to do a Broadway show. And, um, and I think that's just a crime. Um, I will also say that as a younger person, um, it's very, I mean, it's very hard to get hired to direct anything when you're in your twenties, if you're a guy or a girl. I just think that there's this incredible, Jill Soloway has this um, incredible quote about how men are hired for their potential and women are hired for their experience. And that feels very true to me. I feel like that is absolutely right. You hire a man because you feel like, oh, he's, he, he, he has all this potential ahead of him as opposed to with a woman. It feels like, well, what has she done? Anything we can do, anything I can do to start to see a change in this besides just simply hire some more women? I, you know, it's so interesting. I don't know what will change it, but I do feel like even just talking about it, even asking the question is a big part of the change. And I think making sure that on your creative teams that there are, you know, when you're looking at lists of directors, when you're looking at lists of designers, when you're, you know, all of that, 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 that is actually a consideration, I think is a really big deal. I don't think it ever used to be. And um, hopefully like the famous, you know, list of like the top people someday will include um, more women than it does right now. And, um, and I believe that it's possible and we're moving in that direction. Um, but for right now I look around sometimes and I think, yeah, it's like still the same five guys, like still the same, still the same. You said it was hard for someone in their twenties to get hired to direct anything, doesn't yes. matter what sex they yes. are. What should a young director do to start on their career path? Well, I think the hardest thing about directing is that it's very hard to practice because you really need the job in order to practice doing the job, but you can't get the job until you've had the practice. So it's this weird chicken and the egg thing. I think there are sort of three things. One is sustainability. There's financial sustainability because you'll never get hired to direct if you are working in a bank. So figuring out how to make enough money to live wherever it is that you're living, whether it's in New York or someplace else, so that you're able to actually do the work when the work 
can happen. Also emotional sustainability, like who are your people and how are you going to stay in it? Because the business is hard and the vicissitudes of life in the theater are insane and it's random and unpredictable. And so I think emotional sustainability as well as financial sustainability is a big factor. And then I think there's the learning factor, which is who are the people that you admire? How do you get in a room with them? How do you assist them? How do you be their intern? How do you see all of their work? How do you learn your craft? Um, from a distance so that when it's your time to do it, you feel like you've gotten some knowledge from me. I did a ton of assisting. I loved it. I loved being in the room and learning from people who um, I admired. And I felt like those were really important opportunities for me. And then I feel like the third component really has to do with how do you practice your craft? How do you do both of those first two things, make enough money to live and learn from the people who inspire you and then also practice. And that's about like getting people over to your apartment and trying to stage a scene or agreeing to do uh, a reading at 11 o'clock at night in the basement of some church or what doing the French festival or doing a 10 minute play festival or going back and doing a play at your high school or doing something at your college or digging up the opportunities and People always say, well, like, how do you get those opportunities? And I feel like if you're asking that question, you're already in trouble because so much about directing is about creating worlds and convincing people to go with you to that world. And so if you cannot figure out how to create your own opportunities, like that is a number one job of a director is to figure out how to be proactive and create the environments that you want and worlds that you want to practice it, to get good at it, to be able to advocate for yourself, to be able to talk about the work in a way that people get excited and they want to follow you anywhere. And that's about yourself and your own career. And it's also about when you walk into a rehearsal room and you're like, hey guys, we're going to work on this new play. There's no act two. And we're not really sure about that character. And maybe it takes place in this place, but we're not really sure. Let's go and like get everybody on board with that. That's a huge part of what directing is about. And so I feel like you have to be able to do that for yourself and your career in the same way that you do it in a rehearsal room. So you mentioned that you have things you want to do throughout your career. You're still very young for the career of a director with as much success as you've already had. I want you to imagine 40 years into the future, you're getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. What do they say about your career? What, what, would, they, what would you want them to say you've done? Wow. That is a really hard question. I've Nobody never, has ever asked that question I've before. I've never asked anyone else that question before. I just came up with it today. Oh my God, my just mind is blown. For you. My mind is it's blown. The, it's the James Lipton Lifetime Achievement oh Award question. Oh my God, I just have no idea. I mean, I think, um, I will say that it has felt for the last 20 years, the goal has simply been to work, to get the work, to do as much work as possible. Um, it kind of, the, the element of choice was, has not been a big part of my life. I've just, you just do the work. And I would like to feel like whatever this next chapter of my life is, that there's a little bit more flexibility in terms of choice. And part of that is potentially, I mean, working on shows that I make a little bit more money and potentially I don't have to do seven plays a year, which is mostly what I have to do um, to live in New York and have the life that I want. And like, you know, I, I just feel like uh, that that's at some point going to be unsustainable. And sometimes I'm like, today's that day. I can't I can't do it. Um, you know, seven plays a year is a lot. It's a lot. And um, I would like I would like whatever this next chapter to look like or whatever the next three chapters that gets me to another 40 years looks like 
to feel like I have been able to bring projects to people, get excited about things that also I am, um, I'm not just trying to generate excitement for the writers that I'm working with or agreeing to do projects that come to me, but where I can bring something to somebody and say, um, I have a really good idea about this. Let me do it. And I feel like that that will that that is just starting to happen, and I feel like um, that is what I want is to feel like there's more of that in my future. Okay, last question. I want you to imagine this is one of those James Lipton questions. Okay, ready? It's, it's, I'm loving I it. Call my it my genie question. It's now famous all over this podcast. That's about it. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to see you and says. Lee, you've already made such amazing contributions to the theater and helped so many playwrights get their stuff on and get it done well. I want to thank you for that by granting you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway that really makes you angry, that keeps you up at night, that makes you pound your desk? Like, I don't care. What, like, I do think you're a really fun person. So what makes you angry? <laughs> What makes you mad about Broadway that you'd ask this genie to wish away? Wow. That is such a good question. I would like for the shows... that are artful. That may or may not include celebrities. So for me, it's not an issue of celebrity. It's an issue of letting the shows that are artful and not cynical and not um, there just to make a buck, but that are there because actually the people who put them there care about Broadway as a place of culture, not just commerce. I want those shows to succeed. And I feel like those are the shows I've been a part of that have been on Broadway. And, uh, you know, they didn't make a penny. And, um, I mean, I, I think that I believe, as I think you do because of the shows that you've produced, that, that is, Broadway is a place that is big enough for all of it and that it all should be able to be sustainable there. And sometimes there's the unicorn that breaks through Fun Home, Spring Awakening, that are successful, that are lauded, that people go and see, that they love. But I think generally the commerce wins, and I would love for it to be more of a place where the art is recognized and celebrated um, in the same way as those shows that... Um, where there's so much profit. That's a fantastic answer. I agree with you 101%. And thank you so much for spending time thank with us Thank you. Today. Those are such good questions. Oh, good. Oh, I'm glad. Goodness. I like the Lifetime it. Achievement. It was a test run. Oh, God. Uh, thanks yeah. so much for listening, everybody. We will see you next time. Don't forget, Be a Broadway Star makes the best Broadway gift for the theater fan in your life. Beabroadwaystar.com
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 